what's led to, to China's emergence is very much kind of extraction age economics. Um, you know, labor is a major input into the system. And, and, and in China, it's been very, you know, very cheap. And so that's, um, that's led to, you know, the model that you described that, that, you know, the path that China took to get where it is. Um, you know, that's, that's sort of disappearing as, as we move to this much more distributed model. You know, we're going to see local self-sufficiency. You know, small communities will have everything they need locally. They'll have the, the photons, electrons, the molecules that they need. And so, so we, you know, we think of the world as, as, as um, you know, we describe it as a, the network and the node. So you're going to have a, a series of, 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 of distributed, self-sufficient nodes, communities, cities, and so on, that can kind of produce almost everything they need eventually, uh, connected by a global information network. Um, and so we're not going to see that kind of um, flow of physical goods. And largely, you know, fast forward 10, 15, 20 years, and largely it's going to be a fully automated system. So we'll take the human out of the, um, at, at least out of the production system. Uh, and so there'll be no reason to go down the path of China. I think it, you know, that, that, that path is, 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 is sort of closing. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. We typically cover economic issues and opportunities with a narrow focus on Pakistan, but at times it is important to also have a perspective on what is going around in the world. Recently, I read a fascinating book called Rethinking Humanity, published by the think tank Rethink X. This was a fascinating read as it talked about how major technological shifts in key sectors such as agriculture and energy are about to usher in a new age for humanity. These profound changes are already changing our world and to talk about what they mean for us, including emerging markets like Pakistan, I have with me Jamie Arbib. Jamie is the co-author of the book and co-founder of Rethink X. Jamie, welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you very much, Uzair. It's good to be on. So in your book, you mentioned, which was, by the way, a fascinating read, and anyone listening should, should go and download the PDF from the Rethink website. I'll link uh, to it in, in the description. But you mentioned that humanity is at a crossroads. And it's not because of reasons most people would think about in terms of all the chaos that's ensuing around us. You're talking about looking at historical analogies, technological shifts that are occurring and already are around the corner, um, and how we're basically going through a revolution that is more profound and is going to be more profound than the industrial revolution. And what you argue in the book is that this is a third age for humankind, what you call the age of freedom, um, where poverty, inequality, resource conflict uh, will be potentially eradicated, or in fact, it could be the beginning of civilization's collapse. So tell us a bit more about uh, what you uh, are arguing in the book and what changes are around the corner. Certainly, yes. So, so um, I'm Tony Sieber, my, my co-author, and I, you know, we've been writing about technology disruptions for, for a number of years. And, and <clears throat> what we see um, coming up is just a, a, an extraordinary, um, what were extraordinary improvements in our capabilities, in our, in our technological capabilities. And, and, and um, you know, when we look at the transportation sector, we look at the information sector, we look at the, 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 the food and materials sector, we look at the energy sector, um, we, we see uh, essentially a, a 10x improvement in, in terms of the cost of, of, of technologies that, that, um, um, that will develop over the next uh, 10 years, the next decade or so. Um, and, and, and we think that, that each of those sectors will be disrupted over the course of the 2020s. Um, and that'll lead to disruption of every other sector of the economy. So um, 
I mean, the way, the, the, you know, the, the foundations of the physical world are matter, energy, and information. And so we start with those sectors that most directly manipulate matter and energy, information. That's what technology does. Um, and, 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 um, and historically, when we look back over, over previous civilizations, a 10x disruption uh, in terms of, of one of those foundational sectors has always led to a, to a step change improvement in societal capabilities. Um, and so, um, you know, we think the same processes at work now that, that we're going to see extraordinary disruptions over the next, the next, um, the, the next 10 or 15 years. Uh, and that will fundamentally change the basis of society. So, you know, one of the things that I found fascinating was the S-curve, right? That you have this step change that occurs where you reach a rupture point and technology almost becomes really cheap, really feasible. And that basically leads to a spike that is exponential in nature. And most people think in terms of linear progress, right? And the S-curve is exactly arguing that that's not true when these transformative changes take hold. Um, explain to us what the S-curve concept is and, and the fact that what I found interesting was that it's not a given that at that rupture point that you go up, right? You can also go down from that. And so how does that uh, play a role in your thinking about what's around the corner? Yeah, so, so disruption is, is, you know, really poorly understood. I mean, you, you know, what, what tends to happen when people are forecasting the, 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 the future is they, they kind of look backwards to start. They pick a point in the past and they'll draw a straight line to today and then kind of extrapolate it forward into the future. Um, and, 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 and that's fine in, 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 in most points in time because, you know, the way change happens in society and in any sector of the economy or, 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 or uh, in, in terms of civilizations themselves or indeed any complex system um, is that you get long periods of, of, of incremental change or stasis where, where, where things remain in equilibrium. I mean, think of the, the transport system or the energy system. They've been essentially the same for the last hundred or so years. Sure, that technology has improved and, and, and expanded in its reach, but the system is essentially the same. Um, so you get these long periods of incremental change. And, 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 and so that kind of linear extrapolation is okay. It's kind of not a bad approximation for the future. Um, but unfortunately, when you come up to a period of disruption, it gives you a woefully inadequate um, um, forecast because disruption goes in S-curves, it's non-linear. You get these sudden step changes. Um, and that, you know, the other mistake I think that, that, that mainstream forecasters make is, is, is another linear mistake. It's in terms of what we call linear causality. You know, they think that A causes B uh, or a change to, to variable A causes change to variable B, but all else remains equal. I mean, that's kind of how science is conducted. It's what we're taught in the, in the lab. You know, we, we, we analyze the change on one variable, but we hold all else constant. Now, of course, the, 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 the real world's not like that. It's a complex system. Everything's interconnected and, and change in one variable could ripple across the whole system and change everything and then ripple back and, and, and affect the starting variable. So, so what we're doing that's different to anyone else is, is, is modeling a complex system. So we're picking up the feedback loops and, and it's really these feedback loops and system dynamics that drive that S-curve. So in the periods of equilibrium, the, the, the long periods of incremental change, you have negative feedback loops, what we call breaks, that constrain change. And so it's, it's very difficult to disrupt a sector or, or, or indeed a civilization because there's a lot of incumbency there, a lot of resistance to change. Um, and and, um, and you know, a, a simple complex system to think about might be the human body. You know, we have all kinds of negative feedback loops that keep us healthy. 
So, um, you know, if we, if we get too hot, we start to sweat, for instance, and so on. Or if we get infected by a virus, our, our antibodies fight back against that virus. And they're, they're negative feedback loops that sort of act to keep us healthy, keep us in that healthy state. Um, but occasionally, when you get to a, 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 a point in time, um, those feedback loops can cease, those negative feedback loops can cease, can cease to act and get overpowered by, by positive feedback loops that accelerate change. So we call those accelerators. And those feedback loops can drive very rapid change. So you see, and those accelerators affect both the, the, um, the existing, the incumbent industry and the, and the new and emerging industry. So, so for the incumbent industry, you can see um, you know, decreasing economies of scale. You can see increasing cost. You can see uh, decreasing investment. Um, you, know, you can see regulatory support begin to kind of fall away as the industry begins to, begins to, to crumble. So it's, a, it's a sort of vicious cycle that leads to the breakdown or collapse of that, of that, um, of that industry. Whereas you get a virtuous cycle for the new, you get you know, as, as, as you sell more, you get increasing demand, increasing economies of scale, lower costs, and so more adoption. And it's a sort of virtuous cycle of, of, of improvement. And that's what drives the S-curve. And so it happens very quickly. And, you know, if you think of a, I mean, we, we look at solar, for instance, a really interesting example. So solar, uh, in terms of adoption in the US, has been increasing at about 40% per year, every year since the mid-1990s. That's a long period of time, but it started from a very low base. And it was only, only a, uh, two or three years ago that it got to about 1% of the market. But a 40% increase every year is a doubling every two years. Okay, and once you get to 1%, it's only, more, it's only seven more doublings until you get to 100 percent so it's mm. sort of hidden from view for, for a long period of time people don't really notice it and that it, you know when you look at a graph it kind of looks flat and straight at the bottom because it's, it's, it's at very low numbers but suddenly as you get to sort of one or two percent it just seems to explode it comes from nowhere and it catches people by surprise time and time again and that's really the s-curve so you accelerate up that um that curve exponentially and then as you begin to reach market saturation it kind of demand you know new demand levels off and and and, and um and 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 you know you've completely displaced the old system. So it, it, it kind of happens very slowly at first, and then just seems to explode. But it's entirely predictable if you if you understand what you're looking for. And I think a lot of people probably now in these days, given coronavirus and the pandemic, are getting familiar with the S curve, right? That doubling from one percent all of a sudden, the spikes that we've seen all over the world, particularly here where I am in the U.S. But I think that's for me the the, the example that stood out. Um, in the book was around solar was really fascinating, right? And I, I want you uh, to share a bit more about the fact that, you know, what kind of changes are we expected to see, given that, as you mentioned in the book, that we're at a point where the cost of going off grid, like producing uh, electricity from solar is, is lower than the transmission cost itself of electricity, right? So we're looking at this world where going off the grid and these expensive utilities is not going to be feasible anymore simply because it's, it's just much cheaper to go off grid and put rooftop solar or, or wind energy or what have you in, in a community level uh, without relying on the massive grid that the world has developed over the past few years. Yeah, that's right. So, so the electric power sector is really interesting. And it's one my partner, Tony Sieber, has been, been writing about for, for, for a long time now. And yeah, so the cost of solar has been dropping exponentially. And that's really the key driver. And solar is now getting so cheap that certainly at, at grid scale, um, it's the cheapest form of energy generation now. And so, so we're seeing a major disruption. So we're seeing already we're seeing renewables um, 
account for over 50% of the new build market. And in fact, forecasts in terms of plans in the, in the US over the next five or so years expect um, renewables to be over 90% of that market. So that's a market that's kind of disrupted already. Um, but the issue is, you know, power plants last a very long time. So even if you're only um, displacing the new build power market, it takes a long time for a disruption to happen. And so that's kind of the first stage of the disruption. You know, the next stage is in terms of, 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 of what's called peaking. So, so in, in the energy market, you have um, some energy that's kind of kept on tap um, for, 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 for when there's high demand. So you don't keep it on all the time. But when there's high demand, you turn it on. And that, that power tends to be very high cost. It's, it's, it's expensive energy. So you get a big spike in price at those times. And batteries are now beginning to replace that because batteries are instantly available. You can charge them up when the power cost is very low and release the power when it's, when it's cheap. So, so that market's being disrupted. Um, and what we're seeing is as, as more and more solar gets built out, you get times of the day. Um, certainly we're seeing in Australia and Germany and those sorts of places that have a lot of solar in the market. There are times in the day where, where solar provides all the energy. So you're having to turn off, and because you know the marginal cost of solar is zero, once you've built the solar plant, uh, there's no cost to it. Um, and so um, what, what we're seeing is that essentially all gas and coal power plants are, are becoming um, what we call peakers. You know, they're, they're, they're not running at full utilization like, they're, like they were built to. They're being turned on and off. And, 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 and so um, you know, their economics begin to break down very, very quickly. Um, and so, so that peaking market's been turned on its head. And then, you know, finally, the next stage of disruptions, you know, when you begin to replace uh, the existing uh, fossil fuel power stations, and we're, and we're getting to that in certain parts of the world. And I think that's what you're talking about, where, where the, 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 the cost of solar plus batteries or solar plus wind plus batteries is now so cheap uh, in parts of the world that it's becoming cheaper than just the cost of transmission and distribution. So even if, if, if the cost of the energy you produce was free, if you could produce you know, coal-fired energy or, or gas-fired energy for free, it's going to be cheaper. Uh, the, the, the cost of transmission is more than the cost of solar and batteries in an off-grid situation. So we're seeing in certain parts of the world, um, you know, industrial units um, drop off-grid and begin to produce their own power. And soon, you know, residential solar will be, a, be so cheap that people will drop off-grid. And that, that sparks one of those really interesting vicious circles because you know the cost of running a grid is a fixed cost um you know it, it and, and and so it's spread over all the users and as a, as a number of um you know users diminishes as people drop off off grid then that cost gets spread over less and less people so that pushes up the cost of transmission and distribution or the cost of energy uh you know causing more people to drop off grid and that's one of these sort of death spirals or vicious cycles that we talk about um, and that's beginning to kick off in certain parts of the world. And, and, that, and that's why it can happen very quickly. So not only does the cost of solar come down very quickly, but the cost of fossil fuel, centralized fossil fuel generation, begins to rise very quickly as well. Um, so again, I think one of the things that struck to me when I read the book was, you know, again, that connection between across sectors, right? And this confluence of events that is happening. You mentioned batteries and the cost of batteries and the fact that you know, smartphones played a big role in terms of lithium-ion batteries and making them more and more competitive as smartphones became more pervasive around the world. And then, of course, with electric vehicles and Tesla making big investments in battery technology, that was the next step up. And now we're at this place where, you know, that's impacting the entire energy sector as a whole. And so, you know, from, from this perspective, what, what I'm gathering is that, 
there are things that are happening in the energy sector, right, that also then are being enabled by the material sciences and advances being made in material sciences um, that are also changing things. And then fundamentally, I want to get to also agriculture where you have precision fermentation. So I want you to explain a bit about what's going on in that field and how the cost of protein generation and precision fermentation has declined rapidly over the last few years. And in fact, now things like the things we're seeing in supermarkets with impossible burgers, et cetera, are just only the beginning of what's around the corner in terms of how we actually grow and consume our food across the world. Yeah. So, so I mean, what's happening in the food space is really interesting. Again, it's kind of largely hidden from view. But there's a technology that we, we describe as precision fermentation, which is really a combination of, of, of biotechnologies, you know, the ability to, to, to manipulate biology with, with the age old process of fermentation. So what we can do now is kind of hack microbes so that they produce um, pretty much any complex organic molecule we want them to. I mean, proteins specifically, but also fats and other 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 uh, other molecules and so you can you can design now um microbes that will will essentially ferment you whatever output you want so so the very first um, um protein that was produced in this way was human insulin so we used to produce um, um insulin we used to extract insulin from the pancreas of pigs and cows and and and, and to get a kilo of um of, of, it, of insulin took uh, about 50,000 animals, I mean, an extraordinary amount. Um, but, but, you know, scientists back in the early 1980s worked out how to produce human insulin through precision fermentation. Uh, and of course, that's a better product. Right? It, 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 it is actually human insulin, so it's much better tolerated and, 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 and so on. It's a more effective product. Um, but back then, it was about a, a, about a billion dollars per kilogram. I mean, fortunately, we only needed tiny amounts, but, but hugely expensive. But that's been going down this extraordinary cost curve over the last few decades. So by the by the year 2000, it was down to about a million dollars per kilo. And today we see it below a hundred dollars per kilo. And so it's beginning wow. to become, um, yeah, it's beginning to become competitive in other markets. So we're seeing it come into the cosmetics market. Um, people are producing human collagen, for instance, in, in, in certain products. Um, and we see it in certain parts of the food market and the materials market already. Um, we think by about 2024, 2025, it'll be below $10 per kilogram, where it becomes competitive um, with animal-derived products like meats and, and, and other forms of, 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 of products. So it's, um, it sort of seems hidden from sight in some ways, but you can see it like a kind of runaway train just hurtling down this, this, this cost curve. We're, we're just uh, feeling it, the it, vibrations right now, right, of, of that change. We are. So we're seeing, I mean, the Impossible Burger you mentioned is a really kind of great example of this. So at the moment, Impossible Burgers, if, 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 if um, people don't know what that is, it, it's essentially a, 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 a it's an it's a animal-free replica burger, uh, you know, made largely from, 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 from plant products. But they have, um, one element of it is produced by precision fermentation. It's a product called heme which essentially replicates the, the, the meaty taste and texture. And, 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 and so this burger is almost indistinguishable from, um, you know, from a, from a cow burger, from, a, from, a, from an animal burger. It tastes very similar, looks very similar. Um, but over time, as the costs come down, you know, the other products that they produce or extract are going to be replaced. So they use pea protein, for instance, and, and, and fairly soon they begin to um, 
you know, ferment actually animal proteins that they'll, they'll replace in that burger or, or any, any other type of protein that they want. And they replace the fats that they get from coconut oil and so on. So it's uh, currently it's about 2% that burger made from precision fermentation. Over time, that will that, that'll come down dramatically. And it's getting cheaper and cheaper. And, you know, one of the interesting things about, um, about, about, about this model is that it's essentially, it's kind of, we call it food as software. So, you know, a, a cow or an animal, animal agriculture, you know, improvements are essentially limited by evolution. Right? You, 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 it's a very slow process to, um, to breed a better cow or, or, or you know, a better product. Um, you know, this is, this, is, this is a sort of software dynamics where, where, you know, essentially, you know, huge processing power is put to work to, 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 to improve the products, to, 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 to match the different molecules and design the different molecules and, and sort of reassemble them. Um, and so, you know, the, the impossible burger in the market is sort of V1 or V2. And by the time we get to V20, I mean, these things will be dramatically cheaper and better on every, every other parameter for your health, for the environment, for animal welfare, for, for all kinds of things. I mean, they'll, they'll, um, and, 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 and so we're at a kind of really exciting time where, where, you know, you dig into the numbers and look, you can see this disruption happening. There's almost no base to how cheap this can get. I mean, essentially, the only inputs you need are, are, are you know, sugar and water. Uh, and, and of course the microbes, but you know, designing a microbe now is so cheap. Uh, you're getting school children doing it in, in, in science projects. You can, you can design your own protein essentially for, 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 for very, very low cost. So again, I think, so that's the food segment and, and what we're, I'm trying to get us towards the fact, which is the, one of the most phenomenal parts of the book that I found was that what we've seen over the last few centuries, essentially in terms of the industrial revolution, even before that, uh, is what you call the age of extraction, right? Whether it is extracting insulin from animals, as you described, or extracting coal and then making power out of this, uh, or what have you, right? And what we're beginning to have are these transformative technological shifts in the way we consume and produce energy, food, develop materials, etc., that are taking us towards uh, what is away from, technically away from this extractive model of, of society and civilization that we've had. And I wanna spend a bit of time on um, why is it that technological breakthroughs, the type of what we've been discussing, um, are beginning to move us away from this extraction model into something that is going to be uh, hopefully a more a model of more abundance a model of more creativity and a model of more freedom yeah so i mean the, the extraction model you know has existed really since the dawn of civilization uh, since we domesticated plants and animals that's essentially how how our, our means of production our system of productions operated you know we've harnessed plants animals you know materials actually people as well uh, within the means of and we've extracted and exploited them so we we've um essentially we, we dig them up or we grow them we break them down and process them into the things we need and it's a hugely kind of wasteful and inefficient um, process and it's it's based on scarce resources so there's a there's a scarcity to all those resources so you, you get locked in what we call a growth imperative i mean it's a zero-sum competitive game where you know either you exploit or you get exploited if you don't progress and grow someone else does and they take you over and and, and expand and that's been the pattern of human history you know those those um civilizations that have best enabled progress or growth uh, are those that have succeeded and those that haven't have been taken over and forgotten about we don't we, we don't know much about them any day and it's it's been so that's that's kind of you know the key driver 
um, through human history at some level that we've had to we've 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 had to create these technologies to, to grow. But it's not just about technologies. Technologies are um, are necessary but not sufficient. It's also about our organizational capabilities. Um, and so you need you know you, you you need to organize your society as well. You need the the um, um, you know the social economic political systems, incentives, um, and, and so on that, that kind of motivate people, people's actions. So, you know, in the early cities, you needed, I mean, one of the, one of the big breakthroughs was, was, was um, the Sumerian Empire. And that was based largely not just on the domestication at the technology level of, 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 um, of animals as well as plants, but also irrigation. But at organizational level, they, they, they developed writing, for instance. Um, mm. They developed kind of measures and, and, and weights and, and, and standardized all kinds of things, which allowed them to govern a bigger area and influence a bigger area. Um, and, that, and that was a major break. And we've seen those kind of step changes go, you know, go through time. So it's really the combination of the, what we call the organizing system and technology that dictates you know, any society's capabilities. Um, and, and, and those two things kind of co-evolve with each other. And, and, and so we're at a point in time now where... Um, you know, our, our industrial age system, which, which kind of grew up in Europe, um, you know, 500 years or four, three, four, 500 years ago, um, through a period of time that, that, you know, the start, we, we think of the start of the industrial revolution as, 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 as or the first technological wave as, as an information wave, the printed book, we think kickstarted that. And that had huge impact on, on all kinds of things. Um, you know, we, 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 we you know, it, it accelerated the Reformation, it, 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 you know, and, and the Renaissance and so on. And, and we saw, um, you know, it sort of underpinned the scientific revolution, allowed people to record and share ideas and so on, which then led to the next wave of in, in industrialization, which is steam, which is traditionally seen as the first wave. Um, and so on. So you get this co-evolution of your, 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 your technologies and, and your, your organizational capabilities, your social structures, your, your political and economic systems. And we still have that system today. So we still have, you know, democracy and the nation state and, and, and free market capitalism and the sort of social contract that we have now where you exchange your labor for, for capital. Um, and, and, and we still have that, that kind of, um, that, that way of thinking that the, 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 the sort of scientific method is still at the, the heart of our, our kind of, you know, models of thought, the, the reductionism that sits in there. It's kind of very much physics as opposed to biology. Um, and I'll explain that later on, but the, um, the, the, so, 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 you know, we're at a point in time where we've got this, this industrial age system. It's optimized for those industrial technologies, which are all about scale and reach and, um, extraction. So you need, you, you know, they lead to a centralization. There are huge economies of scale in that kind of system. Um, and that, that, you know, that drives a, a kind of centralization there are a few kind of big winners in this, in, 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 in this system. Um, and so, um, you know, that, that's, kind of, that's kind of where we're at today. That's our, our you know, energy system, our, our, our transportation system, our food system, our, our information system, the industrial age information system. You think of, 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 of you know, newspapers, TV, um, radio, those sorts of things, very few distribution channels, high cost, high barriers to entry, you know, very centralized, um, easy to control through centralized governance structures that mirrored that, that system of production. And we'll mirror it in the nation state and so on and so forth. You know, the new system, and information is a great example for this, the new system that's emerging and information is leading the way again, um, is much more distributed. You know, billions of people connected, producing, consuming, 
connecting with each other, able to exchange ideas for zero cost. Um, and, and that's almost ungovernable by our, by our industrial age organizing systems, our, our kind of regulatory and, and governance structures. And, and, and we're experiencing real problems with that. I mean, nation states just can't govern or control Facebook or Google or any of these other, you, you know, you're seeing, you know, a few hackers in a, in a basement somewhere, you know, influencing the election in the biggest country in the world. I mean, it's, it, I mean, extraordinary things. And, 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 you know, our thesis is that as we begin to see, you know, the other sectors move in that direction as well, much more distributed, um, you know, based on, on kind of abundant local resources, um, that, that, you know, the governance structures will be unable to cope with, with, um, with, 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 with this system that's emerging. And we'll need to kind of, um, um, well, rethink all kinds of things. I'm not going to go on any longer. So that was, that no, was I think a, that... a long answer. No, it, it's fascinating because as you're describing that, um, I was thinking through a previous guest I had, and we were talking about with Dr. Ram Sattar, she's a professor at Tufts University about Pakistan's agricultural problem, right? And, and water and the idea about building dams. And she described in different words, what you just described is that not only do you need the hardware, i.e. dams, but you also need the software, i.e. institutions and an organizational system to make sure that that water is then effectively used and governed, et cetera, that just building some hardware is not going to solve your problem. Um, and as I read the book and, and thought about uh, what you were describing there is that that information flow from the coming from the book and then steam engine, et cetera, overthrew the age of empires essentially, right? Eventually, and it overthrew the role, the centralized role of the church, for example, in Europe, and it created a new secular society that is democratic and that is now under strain because of the changes we're seeing. And in fact, like the fact that today we're talking to each other remotely or video conference, right, is, is testament to the distributed nature of information itself. There's no marginal cost associated yeah. with us doing this and me publishing a podcast, except the fact that we have internet and a, and a Zoom video recording capability. So it's, 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 a, it's a tremendous shift in terms of how do we govern. But that makes me then think about the fact that as this distributed world emerges, um, the way you've described, um, is that the old model and the China model, for example, that's currently active or what the South Koreans or the Vietnamese have been doing is that you start organizing on an industrial capacity to become the manufacturing hub of the world and accumulate wealth as a result of that, whether it's in the form of foreign exchange reserves or higher incomes for your people. Um, that is not going to work, right? Because you will have societies, for example, in the United States that you know, with nanotechnology, can all of a sudden 3D print their shoes uh, without hiring people in Vietnam to make their shoes, for example. So if that is going to be the future, first of all, A, am I right in drawing this conclusion that that distributed nature will essentially change the nature of global supply chains the way they're structured today? And if so, then how do you see developing, developing economies, emerging economies sort of grasping with these challenges and being able to grow and, and innovate um, and, and catch up with the rest of the world or the developed world in a way that is feasible for them, given that they're already not caught up yet. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's you know, it's a really interesting insight there. And I think, you know, I think you're, you know, I, th I think you're absolutely right. I think um, the, um, 
you know, the, the emerging economies actually might find themselves in a pretty good situation. So, so you know, what's led to, to China's emergence is very much kind of extraction age economics. Um, you know, labor is a major input into the system. And, and, and in China, it's been very, you know, very cheap. And so that's, um, that's led to, you know, the model that you described that, that, you know, the path that China took to get where it is. Um, you know, that's, that's sort of disappearing as, as we move to this much more distributed model. You know, we're going to see local self-sufficiency. You know, small communities will have everything they need locally. They'll have the, the photons, electrons, the molecules that they need. And so, so we, you know, we think of the world as, as, as um, you know, we describe it as a, the network and the node. So you're going to have a, a series of, 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 of distributed self-sufficient nodes, communities, cities, and so on, that can kind of produce almost everything they need eventually, uh, connected by a global information network. Um, and so we're not going to see that kind of um, flow of physical goods. And largely, you know, fast forward 10, 15, 20 years, and largely it's going to be a fully automated system. So we'll take the human out of the, um, at, at least out of the production system. Uh, and so there'll be no reason to go down the path of China. I think, it, you know, that, that, that path is, 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 is sort of closing. Um, but interestingly, um, you know, when we look back at history, you know, what we see is, is that um, the leaders uh, very rarely, the leaders of one age or, or one era very rarely lead the transition to a new era. And you see it at a company level. So, you know, you see in any sector of the economy that gets disrupted, it always comes from the edge. You know, you, you see, um, I mean, you know, Kodak's a great example where, you know, Kodak developed the digital camera and, and failed to capitalize on it and, 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 and got disrupted. But, but you see it across the board. In, in, I was going to say uh, Nokia and Apple is like... The, Nokia the, and, and the yeah, story, absolutely. Right? Or, or Google or, or you, you know, coming into the, you know, the smartphone market and, 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 and Apple as well. And it's, um, yeah, well, BlackBerry disappearing. And it, it's, it's the leaders, um, you know, they're, they're sort of handicapped by incumbent mindsets. The incentive structures are... Um, you're kind of focused on incremental progress and, and, and all your incentives and your mindsets are geared up towards that. And so, um, you know, there's a baggage to incumbency and you see that with civilizations as well, that civilizations over time, you know, they lose their adaptability. Um, and, and, you know, the cycle of civilizations where you get this sort of extraordinary growth and then this, this period of collapse, um, it, 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 you know, the, the, the incumbents are unable to adapt. And then a few hundred years later, after a dark age, you'll find someone on the edge of that. So you'll find, you know, the, um, you know, after Egypt, uh, after Egypt um, collapsed, you, you know, you, you found, you found Rome, um, you know, essentially took over, took over the mantle with the next age, broke through and, and got up to this sort of far higher level of capabilities than even the Egyptians had. And they were, um, they were on the edge of, you know, they had knowledge of the Egyptian technologies and development further, but they had none of that baggage of incumbency. They weren't held back by that. And so, so our view very much is that the, the, you know, the Chinese, the Americans, the Europeans are actually disadvantaged uh, by being in the lead now. It's almost going to be impossible for them to give up some of the things that they need to rethink. I mean, you know, we, we think of as, as fundamental truths, you know, things like the nation state, things like democracy, which actually might not be the best constructs going forward. You know, those are variables. They're not constants. You know, they've, they've served us very well for a few hundred years now, certainly in the UK. But it's not necessarily the best method of managing this emerging society. And, and, and so, you know, those places where those things are less embedded 
um, actually might be in a better position to experiment and 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 and, and try new ways of of of, of organising themselves. And, and and certainly, you know, any we, we think any part of the world now is capable of of capitalising on these trends. Again, you know, high you know very low cost. You need some capital to build the system out, but once it's done. You know, extraordinary low cost of goods and 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 so on, and the challenge is really about the organisational capabilities. So I, I would I would I would put money on the um, um, you know, those parts of the world that 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 aren't quite so advanced right now being in a better position to succeed here. And I, I, as you were describing, sort of, you know, the incumbents, um, I was thinking of you know the dawn of the industrial age um, in and Great Britain and the East India Company. Yeah. And if you were to put money on, if you were if you are able to go back in time and sitting at the height of the Mughal Empire and say that a bunch of traders from the East India Company would basically overtake and overrule the entire Indian sub, almost the entire Indian subcontinent in a matter of years, um, people would have said that's not possible because just look at the size comparison and look at the wealth, et cetera. But that seismic shift occurred and all of a sudden we found that trading companies and small uh, nation states like Great Britain and Netherlands um, basically overtook uh, the entire world, again, in that extraction age model. Um, and yeah. so y- you have a similar shift occurring in the U.S. right now, for example, where there are people talking about a Green New Deal and trying to get investment into these new technologies uh, to get that capital directed towards the future. But the current system and the incumbents and, and the dominant powers are are fighting and resisting that because the status quo will change. and and the dominant players will stand to lose if the status quo were to change uh, today. Um, so I think that's that's something hopeful, right, for these countries like Pakistan, like Bangladesh, like India, that are still grappling uh, with how to move forward in the 21st century, that in fact, um, they can and they have the opportunity to, to catch up and actually leapfrog everyone else in the process. Um, yeah. But but from, from my perspective, the, the thing that, um, you know, strikes me is is that's the age of freedom that we're going towards with technology, right? But technology also has the downside and, and the information networks that you say that will underlie this new system actually are currently monopolies or monopolistic in nature. Facebook with Google and the dominant power they have, for example, or even Amazon and the power it has accumulated in, in the modern consumption economy. Um, do you see that uh, dominance as as a good thing or a bad thing, or or and and would if, if this dominance were to continue, do you see a future where actually the benefits that might accrue from this sort of technological shift may actually accrue to a very thin slice of the world's population, and actually we may end up instead of going into a utopia and an age of freedom, we might actually reverse back into a dystopia where power is uh, in the hands of a very few elites. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think you know one of the you know one of the interesting things. I mean, we we see you know we we talk about seeing humanity at a crossroads, and, and by that we mean you know we're, you know we have a choice. We we don't think the current system can continue indefinitely. So we, you know we think we'll see over the next decade or two either a collapse um, in, in 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 global civilization or or this breakthrough pathway where we manage to harness these new technologies and 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 take that kind of path of exponential growth. You know, to to an extraordinary civilization. But that civilization could come in a number of different flavors. Uh, it could be a benevolent situation where the benefits are widely shared. And, and you know, it kind of depends on the choices we take 
Um, but it could be hugely dystopian because, you know, just as the extraction age technologies, you know, were, you know, economically at least defined by kind of economies of scale, and you, you had a kind of a, a, you know, a number of winners, you know, in, in the, um, in, in this emerging age, um, you know, they're defined by network effects and network effects are much more powerful in, in, in many ways than economies of scale. You know, you get one winner generally in a, in, in, in a network. And I think if we, if we stay in our current model of ownership, for instance, then it's a disaster. You know, whoever owns the network or the platforms, the key platforms built on that network, uh, are going to own the world essentially. Um, and it'll be hugely dystopian. We're seeing, you know, as, 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 as you know, Google and Facebook and Amazon grow, you know, amassing huge wealth and huge power. Um, so, so that's what we say when we say that some of our organizing structures or our organizing system need to change. I mean, you know, ownership is one of the key elements of that, the, 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 you know, the, the rules around that. And, you know, we, we would, we, you know, we would expect, if, you know, if, if, if we succeed and get to a, a sort of benevolent one, it'll be one based on, on the sort of communal ownership of the, of the network. Um, and it would look very different. I don't, you know, it sounds like communism. It's not necessarily like that I was that going to say that, are you, are you talking about communism here? But I, I think you're referring to some, a new system emerging, right? Yeah, yeah no, communism, you know, I mean, communism's been, been, been interesting. I mean, you know, one of the reasons, you know, it, it, it hasn't been successful in this age is, is that it kills the incentives to progress. Um, and, and that's been the problem, actually, with deep socialism and, and things like that, is, is that if you do that unilaterally, you know, someone else just overtakes you. And, and you know, it's, as you say, it's like the British, you know, the East India Company turning up in India with these extraordinary powers. Um, you know, people just race ahead. And, and, and I think, you know, we, we will, you know, you know, that's kind of what we expect to see with this. That someone's going to get the right combination of, of organizing structures and, um, um, you know, and technology. And they'll just race ahead. And it's not necessarily going to be a physical conquest this time. It might be virtual. It'll just be a kind of remote takeover, just like the, you know, the Spanish conquistadors, uh, you know, arriving in South America or, or, you know, the Romans arriving on the, you know, the doors of great, you know, the, the, the shores of Great Britain. It'll be the same kind of, you know, the same kind of effect where, where you know, you just don't see it coming. And then suddenly, you know, they, they yeah. break through and, and it will happen in a very short period of time. And again, like there, again, it's, it's about imagining something new, right? The fact that a lot of people today take, for example, the multinational public limited company as the end all be all as the system that we have and as, as being a constant, that's not true. This is a very, in the grand scheme of things in terms of how civilizations have organized themselves, it's very young and it's a very new concept and it didn't exist a few hundred years ago and it probably won't exist sometime in the future. And the fact is that as the systems change and as our technologies uh, shift, the idea is to imagine a new future. And at times, yes, the remnants of the previous system and the previous age will be part of what comes next. But the fact is that we shouldn't constrain our thinking in terms of saying, well, the only way to have a dominant information network that is underpinning this entire new system is through a Facebook or a Google, which is a public limited company, right? And you talk about that in the book in terms of like an information company or, uh, or a new type of concept which has different roles and responsibilities compared to the shareholder value generating uh, model that currently exists. Yeah, no, I, 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 I absolutely agree. I, th I think one of the challenges is, you know, over the next few years, we'll still need those structures to, 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 to drive the kind of progress we want to see to accelerate us down the path. But at some point in time, we won't, you know, as AI takes on an increasing role in, you know, in, 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 not only in kind of governance, but also in kind of technology development and so on. 
um, you know, you can kind of hardwire progress, um, you know, into in, into the AI. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's 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 um, you know, it's in, it, inevitable that we're going to have to rethink everything. I mean, it's it's um, you know, essentially everything in our system is a is a variable, and we you know we tend to see things as constants. You know, we we, we like to we like to think in a kind of narrow band and extrapolate these the, 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 these things forward. But, you know, and, and, and that's part of the problem. We try and solve problems like poverty or, or inequality or climate change. You know, that what we're, you know, those sorts of discussions we're having in society right now about how do we patch up our, our old industrial system? How do we make it work better? And, and, not, and, and, and that's needed. Don't get me wrong. That's a, a useful thing to do because we need to, you know, make that system last until this new one kind of fully emerges. Um, but it's not a, it's not a root cause. It's, it's not a root cause. Uh, so, so it's not a solution of the, of the root cause. You know, I kind of, I kind of, I could kind of think of it like a, a doctor kind of treating a symptom. Uh, and then treating this, you know, the side effect of the treatment and so on and so forth. That's what we're doing. We're kind of putting sticking plasters on our, uh, on our industrial aid system when what we, you know, what we should be doing is sort of enabling, um, you know, the new creation based system that we talk about to emerge. And that's where, um, you know, you solve the root of the problem. It, you know, you can't, I mean, a lot of these problems we have are in our, in our, in our world today are in conflict, right? you can't solve them all together. You can't solve poverty, inequality and climate change together. You know, if you, um, you know, poverty and uh, sorry, so climate change, we want to solve it. You know, we can't do it by giving up consumption or 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 whatever without uh, affecting um, you know poverty and, and so on. So there's a, a sort of an inherent conflict between the various problems we face. Um, in and, in and, fact, right, like the the end of poverty, or you know, again going back to China, for example, or India, for that matter, as it continues to have a burgeoning middle class, right? There is a dissonance between poverty and climate change because as that middle class grows, it's going to consume more and produce more CO two emissions, which actually fundamentally damages the environment more and more and as they consume more meat as they do certain other things that you know we we can't expect to have a growing middle class while at the same time expect that the climate change goals that we have uh, will be met um, at least in the near future um, given the current state of the system. No, I, I think that's exactly right and I think you know that's the problem with an extraction-based system. It's, it's kind of inherently unsustainable that at some point you're going to reach the limits of it and 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 we're seeing that with climate change it just you know we, we cannot grow very much more we're already kind of beyond the limits um in terms of our, our, our you know greenhouse gas emissions in terms of our kind of effect on the soils and the oceans and the forests and 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 and, and so on and so forth um and and and, and so we're gonna we're gonna run into a wall at some point and and you know we can't we can't solve it within this system. But, but what's interesting about the new technologies that are emerging in, you know, the big emitting sectors, transportation, energy, and food, that have the biggest impact on, 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 on greenhouse gas emissions, is that they're all, the new technologies are all essentially decarbonized. So you're decoupling kind of progress and growth, um, you know, from an environmental impact. Uh, and that's really exciting. So, so you know, we often perceive um, kind of energy use or, or transportation or, or food as, as a sort of bad thing, that it's, you know, overconsumption is a bad thing. It's not. It's, a, it's a, the greenhouse gas emissions or, or the deforestation or whatever that comes with them that's bad. Um, you know, these new technologies, uh, you know, you can, you, can, you can use essentially as much energy as you want or, or as much um, transportation or, or, you know, eat as much food as you want without really having an impact on, on, on the environment. So you've kind of decoupled um, 
um, climate change and environmental impact from from growth and progress. And 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 you can only do that with this new system of production. You can't do it within in, inside the old model. Yep. And and so I want to switch gears a bit. And I have a point of view in terms of how countries like Pakistan or India or Bangladesh, and particularly in the South Asian context, um, can can use or leverage these emerging technologies to basically catalyze growth and leapfrog. Um, but I first want to get your perspective in terms of if you were advising, let's say, the Prime Minister of Pakistan or the Prime Minister of India or Bangladesh, like what would be your perspective and your advice to them in terms of how do they structure or set the foundation of their economies of their countries in a way that what comes in the next 10 years or so with these transformative changes is actually enabling a leapfrog effect uh, for these societies? Yeah. So, so, I mean, you know, number one, I'd focus on the information networks. So, so make sure that you have, you know, in whatever form you go for, whether it's, you know, satellite or, or you know, fixed line broadband, you know, fiber or, or, or whatever it might be. But, you know, ensure that you, you invest heavily in the information networks. That's at the core of all of, of these disruptions. Um, and then roll out as, as much as you can, you know, the energy system, the, 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 the renewable distributed energy system. Make sure you're planning for the future. Because you know it might be it might be a good thing now to build a, a kind of grid scale solar plant, but it needs to be compatible with a much more distributed future when 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 we see a distributed um, or else it would just be stranded as, as you know along with the, the coal fired power station that it replaces. Um, and and whatever you do, you know, don't invest in the old stuff. I mean, there's no excuse at the moment for investing in a coal fired power plant, for instance. Um, I mean, it's more expensive. You know, the, the, there's less energy security. You still got to get a supply of coal and and and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so, you know, this new system is is not only you know more secure, but it, you know it's it, 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 it's more resilient as well. So, um, you know, in, information and energy, I think, are absolutely critical. Uh, you know, transportation, the food system. You know, we've got a bit of time, but certainly don't make big investments in in, in the old system. I mean, you know repair and run down the old stuff keep it keep it functioning while the new stuff comes through but but all infrastructure investment should be focused on the new stuff and there's an you know a real opportunity to kind of you know accelerate the uh, the adoption of that and once you've got those building blocks in place you know everything else will follow um you know healthcare will be largely disrupted by these new information capabilities of sensors and, and all the other things with we're developing, you know, as we move much more from a, a kind of treatment-based paradigm to a prevention-based paradigm, we're able to mm-hmm. constantly monitor population. So, 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 you know, that's my my starting advice: is, is certainly, you know, concentrate on on building out the new. Don't invest in the old. Um, and then the other thing is just, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know um, how this functions in Pakistan, but the. Um, you know, the power of the incumbency is something that needs to be overcome as well. <laughs> I think for me, that's one of the big worries is, 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 is um, you know, the pushback that you get from incumbents as they begin to begin to break down, um, you know, the lobbying and the, 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 the sort of influence and, and, and whatever else that comes from, from those. And, and, and that can have an effect on slowing down the market. It can put up sort of regulatory hurdles in front of the um, uh, in, you know, in front of the new technologies. It can, it can, it can put up all kinds of, um, barriers along the way if it's if it's allowed to and i think that's a that's going to be a real challenge to to kind of remove the claws of the incumbents from yeah i'll start with the incumbency i think that that particularly in pakistan less so in india but and bangladesh but i'll speak to pakistan it it is a rent-seeking 
an extractive model, right, which has been economically captured by incumbents. So, for example, Pakistan grows a lot of sugarcane, even though it is actually not feasible for it to grow sugarcane just because of a dominant political business nexus that has incentivized the growth of sugarcane. It's been very, very hard um, to break through um, that dominant incumbency and that cuts across sectors. But another thing that the Pakistanis did over the last few years when there were significant electricity shortages was that they invested heavily in coal power because they were financed by the Chinese. And again, you have these 30-year life cycle power plants that are being set up um, to run on coal power, for example, and people like myself and others have argued that that was a really foolish decision to invest money at that point in time uh, into coal power because you just you could have invested that money in other places. But again, in terms of information networks, right, um, I was looking at some data and there is a huge digital divide in Pakistan. In the Indian example with Reliance Geo and what they've done with 4G connectivity has been transformational. So India is ahead in that where Pakistan has a long way to go. But even there, right, that information network, when you mentioned health, but I would mention education as well. Like, for example, with literacy, if you if you lay down the information network, all of a sudden, you no longer need an army of teachers to reach to every village and every every little district around the country to educate children. You can have distributed learning and distance learning uh, enabled through technology, but you first have to have that infrastructure there. So I think I think we're aligned there, and I, I particularly on the energy side, right? Um, there, there's reports that Pakistan needs billions of dollars of investment in upgrading its transmission system. And what I'm hearing from you is that instead of sinking that money in upgrading their transmission system, you may want to maintain it, but that investment is better utilized uh, in distributed energy and battery storage technology because that's what will give you the biggest bang for your buck. Yeah, certainly. Couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, patch up the old system, you know, keep it functioning whilst we still need it. But but don't invest in new stuff. I mean, it's um, yeah. it's I mean, the problem is, you know, you do have all these perverse incentives and, and regulatory capture and, um, um, you know, all kinds of, 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 of um, you know, things happening that, that, that put up barriers and, and create problems. So you can't always take entirely rational um decisions but yeah i think you absolutely it's 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 crazy to to invest in a lot of these things i mean we've seen that you know the uk government sign up to to um you know nuclear power contracts you know offtake agreements for you know 20 25 years which is you know nonsense to power that's going to be far too expensive you know going forward and and you know building a high speed rail line that's not going to be ready for 10 or 15 years uh, mm-hmm. You know, the cost of a billion pounds, a hundred billion pounds, I think it is. And, and um, you know, it'll be obsolete by the time it's built. I mean, there's there's all kinds of ludicrous stuff going on. Um, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and it, you know, we could, we could waste an awful lot of money. And I think, you know, those countries that, that spend much more wisely will do well. And as you say, you know, I entirely agree. Information's at the heart of everything, you know, not just education, but health and, and pretty much every part of society. No, this has been a fascinating discussion. And before we close out, I'm mindful of our time as well. But I asked my guests to at times recommend to do three books. Your book is going to be in the description and it's highly recommended. (laughs) I still have to read the agriculture and the transportation reports and deep dives. It's on my to-do list. Um, But what are two to three books um, that you would recommend to folks who are interested in learning more about these technologies and the fundamental seismic shifts that are around the corner. So, so I would I recommend a book by uh, 
Ian Morris, who's um, a historian, on uh, called "Why the Re Why the West Rules the Now," and it's fascinating. It's a sort of um, extraordinary journey through sort of I don't know even a hundred thousand years of human history, and it's it, it's fascinating. And then I mean, one of my absolute favourite books of all time is is Jared Diamond's um, "Guns, Germs, and Steel." That's again that's a, kind an of, a, a kind of a kind of big history, but it's 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 I love that the, you know the, that way of thinking. Um, and, and, and yeah, so, so definitely those, you know, those two are top of my list, certainly in, in, in terms of, um, of understanding, you know, where, you know, where we are today and how we got here. Well, those are great books. I haven't read the Ian Morris one, but I have read the Jared Diamond one and it is an excellent book. And this has been an excellent discussion and, you know, one that I at times have with myself and with my friends about what the future holds. And I think it's important that emerging economies also pay attention to these things. So I thank you for your time. Um, it was an excellent book and I think the deep dives will be even more excellent. So thank you for the forward looking thinking and uh, hope to be in touch and have a great rest of the day. Great. Thank you. Sir. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for tuning in everyone. Um, uh, this was a great discussion. If you like our content, please uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel um, or on like us on Facebook. Uh, we are also on all podcast mediums, so we'll see you next week and have a great rest of your day.